Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james this isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host this is the james altucher show today on the james altucher show your goal isn't to make the most money That's going to happen if you start making good decisions all the time. The outcome is actually not what we're after, that we're after the process. One of the things that poker is so good at is it helps de-bias you. You can't change the past, so forget it. We need to change the present and actually make the best decision we can right now. The players who can't remember that are gonna lose. And I think that realizing that I just always have to keep paying attention and reevaluating and trying to see what is the environment telling me and what does that mean for my decision. I think that's crucial and that's something I learned from poker. What was really interesting in the way you described different hands and different tournaments is that a particular hand has its own narrative. It's like a story. Yes. It's almost like a mystery novel, every single hand. And you have to kind of unlock Mm -hmm. the mystery. You have to figure out what is the narrative my opponent or opponents are telling me Mm -hmm. at this point. And do I believe that narrative? Does the narrative make sense? If it doesn't make sense, am I thinking about it correctly? What could they be thinking? Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting, the relationship between storytelling and poker and decision-making. Like, those things seem to be interwoven together throughout the book. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm fascinated, too, about learning, mm-hmm. the different techniques you use to learn. But why did you decide to do this book? I could guess, but what inspired you? <laughs> So initially, it wasn't supposed to be about poker at all. I mean, I didn't know what it was going to be about. I knew it was going to be about luck. I knew that I was really interested for my next book 
to explore the role that chance plays in our lives and to try to wrap my mind around how do we figure out what we control? How do we figure out what we can't control? You know, how do you learn to tell the difference? This next podcast is one of my favorite people and about one of my favorite subjects. So Maria Konnikova started from scratch. She didn't know the rules for poker at all. She didn't know anything about poker. She decided she was going to learn how to play, get a coach, and then write a book about it a year later. And she didn't think she would get so good. But a year later, she had already made over a quarter of a million dollars. And she even had to delay writing her book. She was getting so good at poker. Her coach was Eric Seidel, one of the best poker players of all time, maybe the best poker player of all time. And Maria and I had a fascinating discussion about what she learned, how she learned so quickly, some of her experiences, some tips. And this is like my dream podcast to talk about games, writing, and money. So here we go, Maria Konnikova. Once again, Maria Konnikova, welcome to the podcast. And I'm so excited to have you on. We've talked about this book for years, but first, Maria, how are you doing? I'm doing well, James. How are you? Good. Do you play any poker today? Um, I have not played any poker today, no. Hey, you know, speaking of which, um, a few weeks ago, we were both, uh, I know we were both supposed to play in yes. this online poker tournament for Morning Brew. It was a, it was a, a, a mm -hmm. little tournament that they held on Twitch. And I don't know, there was one point, there was someone who had a similar name to you. That was and me. That was you? I was, uh, well, playing? I played. I did play, but I was Maria K. Oh, okay. There was someone who was like M-K-O-N. Oh, wow. And that person was ahead of me almost the entire time. As a <laughs> I kept thinking like, damn, Maria's ahead of me still. And uh, You did really well, right? I, I yeah, saw that you had lots of chips. I, when uh, I busted, you had lots of chips. I came in second, which was very exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. It was fun. And um, that was a fun, a fun tournament. But uh, anyway, we're talking about your book, which I've been so excited for. We've talked about this over the years. Uh, you know, you were first on the podcast in 2016 to talk about your book. Um, I have, I have the name. I always forget it. The, the Confidence, Confidence Game. Game. And yep. it was basically a history of con men and the subtitles, Why We Fall For It Every Time was such a fascinating book. The next book, Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes, also a fascinating book. And now this one, I have to say, I've read it twice now. I just love this book. The Biggest Bluff by Maria Konnikova. And uh, let me get the subtitle up. I always forget subtitles. How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win. And it's about, I'll describe it, but you could correct me if I'm wrong. The premise is you didn't know anything about poker. You you, you didn't, you, you, I don't even know if you knew the rules, but you, let's say you didn't know the rules and you started from scratch uh, studying with a great poker player, Eric Seidel, who's maybe the greatest poker player in, in history. You studied with him and you really got great at poker and you wrote a book about this book about the experience. It's such a fascinating, riveting story from beginning to end. I just love this book. Thank you so much. That really means a lot to me. I really and, and, it. and, you know, during the years we've played, uh, and I've, I've seen you, you grow in, in how you think about hands. And it was <laughs> such a pleasure to, to see how you analyze hands in this book. Although that's not what the, 
you don't really, it's not a poker book. You don't really analyze lots of hands in the book. It's more the story, but it was just, just a real pleasure to see how you thought about the psychology, about the, the, the specific techniques, and then just all your stories interwoven, how people treated you as a, a woman that was rising up and how you, uh, all the, uh, I'm fascinated too about learning. And we've discussed this mm -hmm. before, but how you, the different techniques you use to learn, but why, let's just start off. Like, why'd you decide to do this book? Why, what was, I, I could guess, but what, what, what inspired you? <laughs> So initially, it wasn't supposed to be about poker at all. I mean, I didn't know what it was going to be about. I knew it was going to be about luck. I knew that I was really interested for my next book um, to explore kind of the role that chance plays in our lives and to try to wrap my mind around, you know, how do we how do we figure out what we control? How do we figure out what we can't control? You know, how do you learn to tell the difference? Um, and you've written many books, so you know that that's really, that's just... The beginning of a thought process, right? That's that's not yeah. a book. Um, yeah. And so, uh, the, but, but by the way, that's a good, that's a really good point, which is that uh, it, it's good to have goals that you move towards, yeah. but it's also good to let your heart. It, it, this is a corny way to describe, but it's I feels true to me. Like it's good to let your heart ultimately direct the actual path you take, exactly. and your goals might turn out to be different at the end. For sure, and you and you have no way of knowing that. And I think being open minded and being willing to kind of go with the flow is is a huge is something that's been huge in my life. And I think it's just incredibly important um, to not get set like this is what I'm doing. Well, and and you could tell that from not only from this book, and we'll obviously get into it with this book, but with your your prior two books, like you know, Mastermind, the the Secrets of or How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes. You loved Sherlock Holmes ever since you were a kid. And then, of course, that leads kind of naturally into uh, a book about the history of of the con game and confidence men. And you know, these were passions of yours, not just like what you, you didn't say to yourself, "Hmm, what would be a bestseller?" Yeah. Instead, you wrote about what was pa you were passionate about and what you were curious about, and that's what led to these things being bestsellers. Um, I think that's I think that's true. I think one of the things I've learned over time, be it in books or you know magazine pieces or you know just anything that I've written, is that if I write about something that truly fascinates me, I'm going to be able to make it interesting. And if I just write about something because I think I should or because someone has you know told me to or because I think it would be a good story, but I'm, my heart's not in it, you can tell those are some of the worst pieces I've ever written. Like you can tell that it wasn't something that I was passionate about. And you know, I see that in other people too. Like there are writers who can make me care about topics I really don't care about. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm reading Michael Lewis and I'm like, oh, this baseball thing's really interesting. And I don't care about baseball. I don't care about sports. But if it's well done and if it's done with true interest, I think it can really draw you in. It's so funny because Moneyball, which is the book you're referring to yep. by Michael Lewis, I became obsessed with that book. I don't know anything about baseball. <laughs> but that actually book, like I was just getting into the hedge fund business when that book came out. And that was really um, kind of a shaped a lot of my thinking about investing was Moneyball. Yeah, that's really interesting. Oh, yeah. I, I and I had no idea. I just randomly picked that example because it stood out to me as, you know, a book about a subject that I really, really don't care about at all. I mean, I do not follow sports. I cannot begin to tell you how dispassionate I am about yeah. sports. I, I know the feeling. <laughs> and, and, and yet, and yet, that book was just brilliant. Anyway, 
Um, so, so I didn't know I was going to be writing about poker. And I, whenever I'm writing anything, whenever I'm embarking on any sort of new project, no matter how long or short, my first step is always to read and to really immerse myself in the world and kind of see what's out there and just look for inspiration. Because, you know, I think good writers need to be readers, first of all. And I love reading and I love books and I love I love learning. So I started reading everything I could about chance. And one of the things I read was John von Neumann's Theory of Games, the foundational text of game theory. And I had no idea that von Neumann was a poker player that had never come across my radar. And I didn't... I I didn't know that either until I read it in your book. um, And I've read a lot about John von Neumann, (laughs) so I'm surprised I didn't know that. Um, and, and and I didn't know he was a roulette player as well, which you describe in your book. Yes, yes, he didn't like roulette, but he he was doing some experimentation. <laughs> That's what was, it seemed like. Yes, he was trying to see if he could if he could find a system for beating roulette. Um, by the way, the the scene you you refer to, I found um, the unpublished uh, memoirs of of his wife, um, Clary von Neumann. And um, she she described a lot of this stuff, which I just found oh, really? totally fascinating um, about about his life, about their meeting. So von Neumann was not only a poker player, but game theory was actually inspired by poker. He conceived of like this huge theory that really revolutionized the way we think about so many things. Um, that was such just a pivotal theory of the 20th century when it came to economics, um, when it came to mathematics. Um, and all of a sudden, I had this realization, oh my God, this came from a game and not like this came from this random game called poker that I know nothing about. Maybe I should read about this game. You know, how did it lead to such brilliant insights? Um, and von Neumann actually describes at one point why he chooses poker. And he says that he doesn't like other games. So you mentioned roulette. He didn't like roulette because it was just total chance. He yeah. tried to solve it. He realized, actually, no, this is complete BS. We This is just chance. So it's not interesting to him. And chess was actually also not interesting to him from a game theory standpoint. because That's so interesting. Because it was a game of complete information. It can be solved. Theoretically, there's always a right move, right? And if you give me enough computational power, I can find it because all the information is out there. It's just up to me to find it. So, and, so, so, and, and sorry to interrupt, no, but it, please. it's so interesting to me because I've obviously played chess very deeply yeah. and poker somewhat deeply. And at the height of me playing poker, I also thought this is a much more interesting game to me than chess. In some ways, chess might be harder yeah. to get good at or to you you can't win a big chess tournament without being great yes. whereas poker there because there is some there's not a it, it is a skill game yeah. but like but like backgammon where there's a dice component and yeah. and and cards there there is a chance component too so some every now and then someone will accidentally win yep. a great tournament <laughs> but chess that can't happen yes and Very uh true. Uh, but I was, I always thought to myself, man, this is poker is so much more interesting to me because it's not a perfect information game because Mm -hmm. there's psychology, because there's sort of a, 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 almost a, a weird subculture at the table that happens. It's, it's just, I don't know. There's a, there was a social component too that I thought was very interesting. Absolutely. And that's actually what von Neumann 
loved about the game and why it was interesting to him, because it was a game of incomplete information. And he said, you know, the decisions we make in life, strategic decisions, are all about incomplete information. There's always things that I ha- that I know that you don't know and things that you know that I don't know. And the way that he phrased it was, I, I think, just beautiful um, and I'm going to try to get this quote right, but I may may get a few words wrong. He said, real life consists of bluffing, of little tactics of deception, of finding out what does this man think I mean to do. And that is what games are about in my theory. And to me, that just captures so much about decision-making, about the beauty of poker. Um, obviously, I didn't know it at the time because I'd never played poker. But um, And you're, you're right, I didn't know the rules. I didn't know anything about poker when I when I began, but that's why the game fascinated him because it was like real life, these little tactics of deception. And, you know, if trying to figure out what do you know, what do you think I know, right? You can go back and forth ad infinitum. It's not just first order where it's like, oh, what's the best move? It's what does the other person think? Yep. I might, might be my best move. And then how can I make him think? And then there's third order. Like, how can I make him think something different about what yep. my cards are? And and you can go pretty deep on that. And then there's, you know, all the normal decision-making techniques with like the math of it and card skills and so on. And, uh, anyway, it's just, you're, you're yes. Um, yeah. So, so that's when I read that, I just became fascinated by, this idea. So I said, let me read about poker. You know, let me kind of see what's going on here. And I started reading about poker. And you know, sometimes things just click. And something clicked in my mind. I thought, this is actually, you know, von Neumann thought it was a good lens into decision making. And if it's good enough for von Neumann, why isn't it good enough for me? Why don't I learn poker? And why don't I actually spend some time immersed in this world? Why don't I find someone who can teach me and actually use that as the arc of a book, use that as a way to kind of explore luck and chance and skill and all of these different components um, and have that journey be the story, be the book. And I obviously had no idea, you know, how it would evolve or what would happen, but that was kind of the initial seed. Um, and obviously the book changed a lot. Um, I had one idea in mind. It became something totally different. Yeah, well, what, what, what's great is you became immersed in the high-level culture of poker and you're playing in all these, you know, at, at, at very high level and all these, you know, world title tournaments and you're, you're started winning and you, 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 you amassed a sizable amount of winnings pretty quickly for someone who didn't even know yeah. the rules. Like after you had been playing a year, like what's the, what's your total winnings in poker right now? Like cash winnings. Um, so for, for tournaments, um, a little over 300,000, I don't know what it's the amazing. exact is. It's been a couple is. of years. Yep. So, and you know, it's interesting, you know, there, there's the kind of mechanics of poker where you, where, you know, it, 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 as you were saying, John von Neumann was alluding to, it kind of mirrors a lot of decisions in life. You know, the way we make decisions and the way we make decisions with imperfect information. And sometimes we have to bluff a little or these tiny little deceits. But then there's this, then there's this larger picture, which you experience throughout the book, which is what for me really makes games fascinating is you also learn how to lose yeah. You learn how to you learn how to be in despair and be comfortable with that because yeah. there's a you know people people don't play games unless they love them. But part of playing games is that you're you're going to lose as much as you win for most games. Yep. And you have to be comfortable with that and actually improve through that. And then 
you know, why I like to teach my kids games is you develop also a killer instinct. Like you learn how to kill <laughs> and it's a safe way to learn that. Like rather than going out and killing <laughs> something, yes. you learn how to do it in this metaphorical way. And yes. you know, that even in the book, you even allude to that a little bit. Like you had to go from kind of passive Maria to a little bit more aggressive Maria. <laughs> yep. And the way I took that, it reminded me of when, you know, I had to learn how to want to kill my opponent, even if they were a friend of mine. Like you have to want to destroy and annihilate yeah. the other people. Yeah. And and poker is this weird thing where you're friends with all the people sitting around the table. And at the same time, all you do is lie to them and try to take their money. Yep. So, yep. which is an unusual basis for a friendship, but it it could result in really great friendships. But uh, so so that okay. So starting from that point, though, I'll, I'll let you continue your story. Um. So so I started from that point and thought, okay, you know, let me let me try to figure out how to do this. Um. And you know, step one, I've learned things before, never quite like this. But I do know, you know, through experience, the importance of mentors and the importance of coaches and of people who can guide you, people better than you. Um, and so I, I thought, you know, this is a way for me to become proficient. I didn't know if I was going to be good or not, but at least to learn quickly or and to kind of accelerate the process is to work with someone like that. And so I started doing research. That was kind of step two. Who am I going to work with? And let me just tell you how lucky I got that. I landed on Eric Seidel, that he was my first choice, and that he said yes, because I don't think the book would have existed without him, and I don't think it would be the book that it became, because it ended up that he was, in many ways, kind of the perfect coach for me, the perfect mentor. Reading the book, it, it, it it's almost like he's like this Zen master of poker. Like he's he so is. calm, <laughs> and the way he's guiding you, and also he just like sees right through all your flaws right away he and, does. and really kind of like, but he doesn't pressure you on them. He really just kind of <laughs> says, okay, finish the tournament. We'll go over this later. And, yep. you know, he's, he, and, and by the way, for those who don't know, um, if you ever watched the movie rounders there's a mm -hmm. famous scene, Matt Damon's watching Johnny Chan win the world series of poker in like 1987 or 86 mm, or 89, one of those yep. 88. And he, the person Johnny Chan beats is Eric Seidel, who's playing in that tournament for the very first time and comes in second in this, you know, million dollar tournament, which is amazing just by itself. But you might have, if you've seen Rounders, you've seen Eric Seidel. Yes, he has the visor, that very prominent red visor. <laughs> yeah. That's the one thing I remembered from that movie. And, and, and Johnny Chan checks twice. Yes. Uh, and then goes all, and then Eric tries, figures, oh, he doesn't have a good hand and he goes in and then John, uh, Johnny Chan goes all in and wins. Yep. Exactly. Um, and Eric has come a long way since then. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. But look, it's, that was great to be where he was then. Absolutely. I mean, that, ago, was, so. that was his first major tournament, and he came in yeah. second in the main event of the World Series of Poker. I mean, it's insane. The guy is insanely talented. It's crazy. So I ended up choosing to approach him because, you know, like you said, Rounders has this scene from 88. So we're talking, you know, decades ago. Um, and he, if you look at different players' career trajectories, they disappear. If you look at Johnny Chan, he hasn't won anything major in a very long time. I mean, he mostly plays cash games, but but that's a different story. But he was he had this like moment of glory where he won, you know won the main event twice, um, and then he kind of went away. And that's the that's the case for most poker players. 
Eric stood out to me because he was someone who just kept winning and winning and winning decade after decade after decade. 30 years later, the guy's still winning and still getting first places for millions and millions of dollars at the highest levels of poker. That's just crazy. Um, and when I when I looked, there was no one else like it. Like, literally, there's actually no one else like that. And that stood out to me. And it also seemed, you know, I was watching videos. There's a lot of poker online. And it seemed like he was nice. You know, he seemed he seemed quiet. Like, a lot of the poker players are very loud, and they're yelling, and they're doing this, and they're, they have an act. And Eric just, I don't think he said a single word during any of the videos I watched. He was just kind of quiet. And you talked about killing, and he was deadly. And he would just kill them very quietly and very calmly. I was like, this is interesting. You know, I think I think this will be interesting. And I think the other component was that he was from an older generation, and I wanted someone who had kind of a more a more psychological human approach, someone who had a lot of experience um, in that area. And a lot of the newer players are much more just pure mathematics. All they do, you know, they run these solver simulations. Um, they figure out what the optimal move is, or you know, s- sort of poker hasn't been solved, so we don't know what the optimal move is, but what the semi-optimal move is, um, and they execute that. And I right, knew- and, and just to ask you, like, there's no there's no AI program yet. I mean, AI. There's computers that beat the world chess champion, the world go champion, yep. the world backgammon champion, the world checker champion. No AI to win in poker. No, which is very interesting. It's still the gold standard. Yep. Um, limit hold'em has been solved, but no limit has not. Hmm. And and no limit, just to describe, is um, you can bet whatever you want. Limit, there's yep. every there's a very structured way of betting, so you can't yep. bet whatever you want. It's exactly. a different type of game. Exactly. Um, so so for those reasons, I was like, this seems like a good person to approach. So I just I I randomly, I mean, the the modern equivalent of cold called him. I reached out to him on Twitter. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> um, and uh, and said, "Hey, you know, I'm a New Yorker writer. I'm working on a new project. Um, I was hoping to talk to you about it." Um, and at this point, I had no idea that he spent part of his time in New York. That he split his time between Vegas and New York. I thought he just lived in Vegas, but he actually got back to me and said, "Oh, I'm actually in New York right now. If you wanted to talk in person," and I was like, "Holy shit!" He got he got, he not only got back to me, but he agreed to meet me. He proposed meeting in person, and so um, we met. We had breakfast together, and I just kind of laid it all out and. I still am not quite sure why he said yes. I, I mean, he's given me his reasons. Um, part of it was that I wasn't a poker player. He actually liked the fact that I was a total outsider. And so it could be kind of a way of testing his philosophy. Does it work? You know, can I teach someone with no knowledge um, to play in this way and have her do well? Um, and I think he liked that I had a psychology background and that I was a just a writer with, not a poker writer, but just a writer writer, because he loves the game. He is passionate about poker. And I think he is passionate about any opportunity to spread it and to potentially spread the love of the game to other people. And so he saw that I, that if I learned to understand the game and to love it the way that he did, um, that potentially this was a broader audience for poker. Yeah, I think I think his love for the game really comes through in the book and how he talks about the game and as you're building your love for the game as yeah. well. And let me ask you like, what, what did you think 
was going to happen as you started this. Like, obviously, it's a game that's – and people don't realize how much of a skill game poker is. Like, yeah. I, I always say poker is a, a skill game pretending to be a game of chance. And the other thing about poker is is that most people think they're good at it, but they're not. <laughs> and, and it is a very difficult game. And, like, did you think you would – get as good as you did? Or what did you think would happen? I didn't know what was going to happen. And I thought more likely than not, I wouldn't be great. And this would be an interesting story and kind of an interesting foray into a world that, you know, that would be fine. But who knows, you know, I'd probably end up being competent, but not much else. Um, I had, you know, I had no expectations, especially because I you know, don't have much in the way of mathematical background. The last math class I took was in high school. And, you know, Eric Eric was very quick to tell me that that didn't matter, um, that all you need in poker is basic math. I, um, I, li- I like that he said that because I myself have always wondered that question, that yeah. if you knew all the math inside and out, that give you some edge. It would. There, it would give lot, you a different edge, yep. Yeah, it would give you a different edge. But there's a lot of hands that come up over and over again where if you just know those odds, you're yep. fine. Like exactly. you, you had the one time where you had a pair of queens and someone else had an ace king, yep. and it's something like fifty-one forty-nine in your yep. favor in that situation. But all you have to know is that you have to know that it's a basically fifty-fifty in those yep. situations. Exactly, exactly. So, so as long as you know basic odds and know how to add, subtract, multiply, divide, you'll be fine. Um, and and so that that was that was nice to know, um, but. Yeah, so so I didn't know if that was going to hold me back. Also, I didn't know if I'd like the game. And honestly, I got so lucky in so many ways that Eric was my coach. But one of the ways is that he instilled an actual love of the game in me because of the way that he approached it and the way that he loved it. And I think had I worked with someone who wasn't as pure in their love of the game, who kind of was playing for other reasons, who cared about you know money um, and Eric really he, when he says he cares that the point of poker is to make good decisions and to learn to make good decisions and that you have to divorce yourself from the outcome he's serious like that is the way he plays and you know yeah sometimes you lose a lot of money and that's okay if your decision quality keeps improving eventually over the long term you're going to win and you're going to make money and, 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 and by the way I think that's important um, for any not only for any game but for any high stakes situation like mm-hmm. investing you know they always say like if you if you own a stock and it goes down you kind of have to decide you know would i buy it right here mm-hmm. or like a lot of times people hold on to it because oh i bought it much higher i have to break even at least <laughs> but you kind of have to always sort of say is this moment this stock a buy like your your decision making is always a little bit different than what people normally think and it really has to do with being focused on the here and now and not Absolutely. think of other agendas or goals. The past is the past. Yep. The future is unknown. You yep. just have, you have the situation right in front of you. Yes. And, and, uh, you know, decision-making is very important. You know, decision-making is not only important hand by hand, but also where you are in the, the structure of the tournament and, you know, lots of other factors come into play, but it's still always here and now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's something that Eric really just drilled into me. Focus on your decision quality. Focus on the process. Because your goal ultimately is to make the best decision you possibly can. Your goal isn't to make the most money. Um, that's just that's going to happen if you start making good decisions all the time. But it might not happen right away. And so you can't you can't 
you can't have the wrong goal because if you're motivated by money, if you're motivated by fame, you know, you want to be on TV. Um, if you're motivated by laziness, I think a lot of people think that poker is very easy and that this is a great way to make a lot of money. Those are not kind of those are not the right motivations. But he really, I think, I learned to love the game because I learned to play it correctly with the right motivations, with the right thought process in place, and with the knowledge that, you know that the outcome is actually not what we're after, that we're after the process. And that's, you know, what you were just talking about with um, people making investment decisions. One of the things that poker is so good at is it helps debias you of a lot of these problems in our decision-making that we have in everyday life. And that particular one is one that we often experience, the sunk cost fallacy, where, you know, you, you've you already invested in this, you already bought it, you need to, you don't want to lock in your losses, right? You want to sell. And a lot of investors lose a lot of money that way because they don't want to lock in their losses. Sure. And they stop. They don't take the information in the moment. They forget that you can't change the past, so forget it. You know, We need to change the present and actually make the best decision we can right now. And in poker, it's so important to remember that. The players who can't remember that are going to lose because those are the players who are just incapable of letting go of hands that were good, but then the environment changed. And now the information is different. Now they really need to let it go. They've already invested so much money in the pot and they don't want to let it go. They just want to win it. Um, and so they end up losing it all. And I think that breaking yourself of that habit, realizing that I just always have to keep paying attention and reevaluating and trying to see what is the environment telling me and what does that mean for my decision. I think that that's crucial. And that's something I learned from poker. What was really interesting in the way you described different hands and different tournaments is that a hand, a, a particular hand has its own narrative. It's like a story yes. and you have to almost figure out, it's almost like a, a mystery novel, every single hand. And you have to kind of unlock the mystery. You have to figure mm -hmm. out what is, what is the narrative my opponent or opponents are telling me mm -hmm. at this point. And do I believe that narrative? Does the narrative make sense? If it doesn't make sense, am I thinking about it correctly? You know, if they if they bet here, here, and here, but then didn't bet here, what what does that mean? What could they mm -hmm. be thinking? And it's it's interesting the relationship between uh, storytelling and poker and decision making. Like those things seem to be interwoven together throughout the book. Absolutely, absolutely. And the more I learned about poker, the more I realized just how much of my background as a writer was going to be useful. Um, and as mm. someone who was a journalist and used to letting people tell me their stories, how much of that was going to be useful. I don't think I realized just how many skills I had that were applicable to poker, um, that as I got deeper into the game, I thought, oh, wow, you know, this is actually incredibly helpful. I need to learn to spot where the story doesn't make sense. Um, and that's, it's funny, um, I hadn't really thought about it in those terms until a conversation I had with someone else who was incredibly helpful to me on my journey, um, Phil Galfond, who's another just brilliant poker player. And he actually told me, he, he knew my background, he'd read my work, and he said, you know, be a storyteller, be a detective. <laughs> this is this is what you know. And that's actually one of the most important skills that you have because you want to know the story that the person is telling better than they know it themselves. You want to see what doesn't make sense. 
you want to be able to spot that. And if you pay attention, you will, because they often don't even realize that their motivations are a little off, that they don't act in the same way always when they're trying to tell the same type of story. So it's it's on you to pay attention and to actually suss that out and figure out, you know, what's going on. Actually, the, f- the first thing that Eric ever told me, you know, when I asked the question that every, he probably has been asked this question thousands of times, and I'm still, I, I want to apologize to him for asking it. You know, what's the one thing that I need to know to be a good poker player? And um, he said, pay attention. That's, that's a good response. Yeah, that, that's the one piece of advice that he could offer. I'm still, I'm sorry I asked the question because I know how annoying it must have been. Well, but, at least it wasn't, what's better, a flush or a straight? Like, at least I, well, that wasn't the question. So, um, and so you, you, you started off playing online. Yep. Uh, you would go, it wasn't legal in New York. And yep. I even remember when you were doing this, you would go to New Jersey yeah. to, to play. And, uh, I, that, you know, when I was playing was in the nineties, there was no online poker. Uh, but I think that probably is a good way to get started. So you don't have that visceral nervousness. Like the first time Absolutely. I ever played at the Mayfair club, which you allude to in the book, the, the first time I ever played at the Mayfair, I was like shaking. I was so nervous. <laughs> yeah, I was I was definitely shaking during my first few tournaments for sure. And I thought that everyone would be able to see it. And to be perfectly honest, everyone probably could see it. Yeah. In fact, I know that one person could see it because they said, I know you have a strong hand because your hands are shaking. <laughs> well, it's interesting. People don't realize this. Like after you've been playing for a while, Let's say there's someone brand new sitting uh-huh. at the table. They, it, you really can just suck the money right out of them you because can. you can just see, you can see everything. <laughs> and when you're playing against poker players, you never see this. And then suddenly someone sits down new, and you're like, "Oh, that's what I must have looked like." Yep. Back yep. then. So. Yep. So so that's that's definitely true. So yeah, I started off playing online, even though I really didn't want to. Like I I had no desire to play online. I wanted to play live, but you know, Eric said that online was the best way to get started, both because of the nerves thing, but also because online you can just get so many hands in. Um, And he was telling me that online was the way to go because of the rapidity of experience, that I was just going to be able to get hundreds of hands in in a day, whereas in live Mm. poker, that's just not possible because everything is much slower. And online, you know, the hands are dealt immediately. Everything is just rapid, go, 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 go. and so that was my way of learning what different situations felt like and, you know, just messing around and seeing what different things feel like, um, which Eric thought was incredibly important. And so would, would you, you would take these hands and then show them to Eric and he would kind of, you, how, how did you record the hands? Like, how would you keep track? Well, it was actually very easy. This is another beautiful thing about playing online. You don't need to know anything about hand recording because I would actually just record my entire session. I would actually literally record the screen. Um, And then I would come to Eric and play the video for him. And we would pause and we would go through how I was playing. Um, And so that's... That must be so so great to uh, learn that way. It's a much easier way because as we learned when I moved to live poker, I was so overwhelmed. There was so much going on that I actually would... I couldn't take in all of the information he needed. And so he would get, you know, initially the way I described hands was was wrong. And I think it was very good of him to just, to not let me get away with it, even though I wanted to get away with it, and to force me to describe them correctly and to pay attention to things 
that he wanted from me because, you know, through that I learned, oh, you need to pay attention to everyone's relative stack size, you know, how many chips every single person at the table has. You need to pay attention to how often someone's raising, to how often they're folding, to how often they're three betting, to how they're doing this, how they're doing that. Because he would ask me, you know, when I said, oh, well, you know, I'm playing and I have, you know, pocket tens. And he said, okay, well, is your table aggressive? You know, how many times do you get three bet by this? And I just don't know, you know, <laughs> because there's so much going on and I'm just so worried. I'm just trying to figure out, you know, what do I do with my cards? I'm, I'm not yet at the everyone else part of the game, but because he kept forcing me to do that, I eventually just learned to, to take it in much more organically and naturally. There's an element to this of what Anders Ericsson calls deliberate practice. So, sure. so you know, Anders Ericsson is the professor who uh, sort of developed what Malcolm Gladwell later called the 10,000 hour rule. If you spend 10,000 hours of what's called deliberate practice, uh, you'll get great at something. And part of Ericsson's definition of deliberate practice is you have a coach or mentor who gives you feedback. Uh, all you, you repeat you know, something, which in this case is you repeat playing poker hands and you have a coach that gives you feedback pretty quickly mm -hmm. so you could adjust accordingly. Yep, absolutely. But but you said something very interesting, which um, a little, uh, a few minutes ago, which goes beyond a little bit deliberate practice, which is there were skills you had already developed. Yes. Like, you know, you, 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 you have a skill set, you have PhD in psychology, you're also a writer, you're, you're also the particular things you studied in psychology con men and you know you're writing about sherlock holmes these are all elements you could bring into the study of people and choices and decisions and and lying and yeah. so on in poker absolutely absolutely and i think the smart way to enter any new field is to leverage what you know and to see how it can apply because you know you you never know what's going to end up being useful and not and so it's very limiting to say, okay, these are the skills that I need. Because you don't know. How can you know? This is a new world for you. Yeah. And so, yes, I need to learn about poker. I need to learn the rules. You know, I need to learn whether a straight beats a flush. I need to learn how many cards there are in a deck to try to figure out odds and outs and all of these things. Um, I need to learn all of that. Yes, of course. But then I have no, I don't even know that I'm going to need to be paying attention to these situational dynamics, to how risk averse or risk seeking someone is, you know, to, to all of these concepts that I actually know a lot about because that's what I studied in psychology. And I had no idea that they were going to be applicable here, but, but here we are. And Eric had no idea that this would be something that I knew. And so it's one of these things where you kind of learn as you go and you realize, wow, you're very good at certain things. You're very bad at certain things. You know, how do you, how do you just work this all out? And one of the things that Eric said very early on to me that really stayed with me, and it's something that I actually repeat to myself on a very regular basis, whether or not I'm playing poker. He said this very wonderful, pithy, eloquent phrase, less certainty, more inquiry. And that just like, when he said that, I was like, oh, oh, it is such a beautiful attitude about anything that yeah. you just, you know, you need to abandon this need for certainty and this feeling that there's a right way to play a hand, that this is what you do here, that this is what the way you think about it. This is how, this is, this is this, this is this. You, you can't do that. You can't be certain. And instead you need to adopt 
this attitude of inquiry, of questioning, of always being willing to change and to grow and to be creative and to figure it out as you go. That's why he kept drilling, you know, the thought process in me rather than anything else. It doesn't really matter what you do as long as you're thinking through it correctly. And sure, you'll make mistakes, but as long as you're thinking, as long as you know the rationale behind why you did something and you didn't just do it because, oh, well, you're always supposed to do this, that's what's going to make you successful in the long run because then you'll have all the building blocks in place. As he said, you know, when he reviewed some of my first tournaments and I just butchered hands, he was saying, you know, we'll, we'll get there. It doesn't matter. Like that, that actually matters less. What I want to hear about is your thought process, why you're doing things. And if that thought process is wrong, that's what we need to work on. The mechanics, you'll get there. And I, I love the idea of, of that phrase also, less certainty, more inquiry, because, you know, as we're recording this podcast, we're in this economic lockdown, this healthcare crisis with coronavirus. And I found that in the beginning of this period, like in, in late February, early March, there was so much uncertainty. Yeah. Like nobody knew really the parameters of this virus. Nobody knew anything. Is it immune? How, what's, the, yeah. what's the infection rate? What's the fatality rate? How, where is it going to go? And then on the economic side, nobody knew uh, what are the restrictions going to be. Every day they're changing. There was a lot of uncertainty, and that was creating panic among people. Mm-hmm. And I even found myself like kind of trying at first to cling to certainty. Like I, yeah. because of fortunately I have this podcast, I was able to call every epidemiologist, every <laughs> immunologist, every virologist, healthcare officials, economic officials, you know, whatever. And try to interpret all the, you know, many sources of data out there for myself and for for listeners. But then at some point you kind of have to just, just for happiness, you have to lean into uncertainty. And like you say, just be comfortable in the not knowing. Absolutely. And and just being curious and and even being in awe sometimes while while you learn. Absolutely. it's, It's difficult. Well, humans don't like that. No, no. The human mind really rebels against that. We like certainty. We like, you know, cause and effect. We like black and white. You know, we don't operate well in shades of gray and shades of unknowing. And one of the things that poker really teaches you, I think it's probably the most valuable lesson it taught me, was to be comfortable with uncertainty, to be comfortable with not knowing, to realize that life is poker in a way. It's a game of incomplete information. You will never have all of the information, ever. It's impossible. No one can predict the future. You have no idea what cards are going to come out of, off of that deck. And it's not personal. The deck does not care about you. The cards don't care about you. It's just what's what's going to happen. It's completely unrelated to you, to what you want, to kind of your your desires, to who you are. There's no such thing as, oh, I deserve to win. You know, <laughs> I, I need right. the card. Or there's no such thing as I'm overdue to win. You know, so so this card must go in my direction. That's I mean, the cards don't care. They they can't hear you. They're inanimate. They're cards. And that's, if you think of the cards as kind of the chaos, everything that's going on in life and kind of this uncertain future, you have to just make your peace with that and say, did I make the best decision I could with the information that I have, knowing that it's never going to be complete, knowing that I never have all of the information and knowing that that information might change and that had I known something else or had I looked at something in a different light, I might have made a different decision and that's okay and I need to kind of learn from that. Did I do that? Did I do everything I could? And then 
apart from that, it's not up to me and that's okay. Just saying uh, uh, saying that's okay is is a very important lesson. Yeah, and, and and it's almost like it's almost like there's two paths that one has to get better at. There's obviously all the poker skills, and there's there's many many layers of skills. But then there's also it, it it's almost I don't want to call it the psychological skill because that's that's sort of like too broad. But there's there's this skill of reducing your ego in a situation because if you think like god darn it like he that loser just beat me he shouldn't have played that way i'm gonna keep playing till i get all his <laughs> chips like all all of that where you either inflate your importance or inflate the importance of your hand or inflate the importance of a particular tournament like oh i don't want people to so and so's in this in this tournament i don't want them to think poorly of me all these things you kind of have to you, you have to completely remove ego and importance yes. and just every situation in front of you is like a brand new puzzle that you have to solve by yourself as if no one else is there absolutely absolutely that's that's exactly right and i think one of the i think a really important lesson is to just remove ego it's not about you right you're it's not it's not yeah your ego has nothing to do with it. And actually, I think that's why so many times some very good players are female because, you know, they have, mm. they, they're used to removing their ego because they're not, a, they're, they're living in a world that's controlled by men. Whereas I think for a lot of men, it becomes kind of a, a dick measuring contest and, uh, and they let that get the better of them. And to me, one of my main edges was being able to see that develop and see those mm -hmm. dynamics develop and think, oh, uh -huh, interesting. <laughs> There's this clash going on here. Let me see what I can do about that. Let me see how I can exploit it. So on the poker skill side, yeah. though, I mean, obviously you started reading books. You started getting comfortable with more and more complicated situations. I mean, some of the situations, you know, so we would play casually over the years. And some of the situations you would analyze for me were like really you were going really intense and complicated. Like, <laughs> like we could get in the weeds later. There were some hands in the book that I want to ask you about. But you know, there's this other aspect too, which is, and maybe this is related to the psychological side, but one thing I enjoyed about playing poker was the social side. Mm -hmm. Like you, you, you had this example of a, a player in the book um, where he had sold a company and then he started playing poker a lot. Yeah. That happened to me. I had sold my first company and I had worked so hard building that company and I was just really burnt out and I had no friends because mm -hmm. all my friends were related to business. And so I started playing poker every night and it was really like, I had never really had like a group of just guy friends that would yeah. sit around a table insulting each other while playing a game. <laughs> like it became my ideal universe. Like yeah. I loved games and I wanted friendship. I had I, I, the whole time building this business, I had really kind of given up on friendship and there's this social aspect and you got really immersed in the, the subculture of poker too, which yeah. I'm sure must've been fun for you. It's very interesting characters, people who, who, who kill for a living, yeah. you know, when they, when you play games for a living, you have to be a, you're this natural killer as I, as I, we talked about for before. Sure. For sure. No, I, I definitely uh, met a lot of characters, made some great friends. There are so many just fascinating, brilliant people in the world of poker. I mean, you have people who just could have been successful at anything, including Eric, obviously, but others who you meet throughout the book. Um, you know, someone like Ike Haxton, who's an incredibly talented poker player, 
who has a degree in philosophy from Brown. You know, his his parents are professors. Like, he, he could have done anything he wanted, and he's just this brilliant mind who loves poker and who who loves the game. And, you know, I can talk to him for hours. And that there are so many people like that. Someone named Lucky Chewy, Andrew Luchtenberger, is his actual name. But he's fascinating because he's a killer at the poker table and he's a Zen master. He actually wrote a book called The Yoga of Poker. Um, he does Tai Chi. He meditates. Like he, he is someone who's in the flow. Um, but sometimes that flow involves going for the jugular of your opponent. And it's just so interesting, you know, to see someone like that um, in the poker world um, and who, who can kind of navigate that. It just, it just makes you realize um, how deep this game is um, and how deeply skilled it is that it draws all of these minds and it keeps them. It keeps them hooked on it. Um, on the yeah, strategy, on on kind of it, on the issues, it's it's an addictive game and an addictive culture. And also, you know, uh, I'm surprised. Like you've never really played a game intensely before this, right? Like it wasn't correct. like correct. I'm not a gamer. It wasn't like you're a bridge player nope. or a checkers player, chess nope. player. And like you know, Eric Seidel was a, a backgammon champion. Yep. You mentioned throughout the book Dan Harrington. He's yep. a chess master. Um, I was very happy to see you. You mentioned a good friend of mine in the book, Falafel. Yeah, who's, who's a, unfortunately died since the book. Came I know. Out, I yeah. it was died of. Uh, I guess now it's about a year, or almost a year, maybe six months. I, the time has gone away, but uh, uh, he was such a good guy. I would play him every single yeah. day chess in the early '90s. He was homeless at the time, yeah. and he hadn't even started playing backgammon yet. And then at one point, he just disappeared for six months. And became like the best backgammon player <laughs> in the world somehow magically, and is is it's an interesting group of of people for sure for sure yes and I met falafel in Monte Carlo of all places yeah. <laughs> so so you yeah you you see all of these people all of these minds all of these fascinating personalities um, and it it goes I think there's something I think people will often say, oh, you know, but it's just a game. But there's something very serious about games, about what they can teach you, about the fact that, and you alluded to this earlier, that there are laboratories for working so much out, for testing out so many ways of thinking and acting that will make you better in real life because it's a safe environment. A game is circumscribed. There are rules. Yeah, that's why it's not ever a perfect analog for life. It shouldn't be because it's much cleaner. You have cleaner feedback. Then there's no noise the way that you have kind of the noise of everyday life. But that makes it safe to experiment, to do all of these different things and to figure out what works, what doesn't, what attitudes work, what attitudes don't work. I think it's not at all a surprise that so many great world leaders were poker players. You know, so many Richard but- Dixon. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. He actually financed most of his campaign with poker winnings. Um, yeah, and um, FDR, um, you know, JFK, um, so many, so many people. LBJ. Well, <laughs> you know, it was, it's interesting because w- one one thing about poker that really stuck with me, or just games in general, is sometimes you have to pivot. On a moment's notice. Yes. So you think a narrative is going to go a certain way, and then, and this could be in business, this could be investing, this could be in relationships, but then suddenly you just have to say, nope, 
it didn't go that way. I'm reframing the entire world in the next three seconds. Mm -hmm. And this, and then it becomes suddenly clear, this is the right decision. Yep. And it, and you, for me, I kind of learned that in poker because you could get really, like you say, um, the sunken cost fallacy, you get really invested in, in the way a particular hand or narrative is going. And it doesn't work out. You have to very quickly on a dime adjust your whole psychology to the situation. That's actually one of the things that Eric taught me um, and other people as well, that you always have to think multiple steps ahead because those things might change what you're doing. So when you act, when you do something, you always have to think in advance, how am I going to react if this happens? How am I going to react if that happens? And if the answer to any of those is, I don't know, then you either better figure it out or don't do what you were about to do. You know, if if you're saying, oh, I, w- I really want to raise here. Well, what happens if someone re-raises you? And if your answer is like, uh, I don't know, then, then probably don't raise. Then probably do something else. Um, or figure out what you will do and why. And I think it's so important to think a step ahead in that sense in terms of other people's reactions. But the other way that you think about it is how might the environment change? And other people's actions change the environment, but so does the board. So... Oftentimes, you have to think in advance, what are the cards that I'm going to keep betting on? You know, assuming that this is the action, we've already dealt with the action. What are the cards that will force me to abandon my course of action? Sometimes there's one card in the deck that's going to be just terrible for you. And if you know that in advance and that card comes, you give up. And you're willing to give up no matter how strong your story was up to that point because that was the card that you knew you were going to give up on. Or on the other hand, you know, there are certain cards that might make your story stronger. And you know that even if you're feeling, you know, tired or whatever, those are the cards that you have to keep barreling on, so to speak. And, it, you know, just thinking ahead, thinking how might the environment change and how can I anticipate that and know how I will change as a response to that. It's very powerful and it helps make your decision right now much stronger because even though you can't tell the future, it is a game. And so you can at least think through all the possible outcomes, which is a luxury that you don't have in life. In life, you can simulate certain outcomes or what you think the likely outcomes are, but who the hell knows? You know, it's it's way too messy. Yeah. Anything can happen. In poker, at least, you have kind of a range of outcomes that you know, and you know that these are the only things that can happen. There are only so many cards that can come out. There are only so many things a player can do in response to you. But learning how to do that, how to anticipate that, and how to know what you'll do in all of those scenarios really helps you outside the poker table make better decisions because you have to, once you learn to think in advance, it's such a powerful tool for making any decision right now. Yeah, so so when did you, at what point in your playing, and this must have occurred more towards the beginning, but when did you say, oh, I might have a chance of being good at this? Or when did you feel like, it was just rewiring your brain like, <laughs> oh, now I realize something I didn't realize before. Like, yeah. you know, I, I find with learning any, everything, it, it, a learning curve is really more like the rate of growth of a pandemic, actually. <laughs> it's it, it's what's called, as, as Nassim Taleb would say, it's this sigmo- it, but it's not quite exponential, it's sigmoidal. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 there's this, first it's flat for a really long time, then it breaks out of the lab, then it's exponential, yep. and it doubles like three, four, five, six times. But then it starts to plateau, so it yep. looks like an S almost. Yep. Every learning curve goes like that. Yep. So, but when did you start hitting that that exponential growth? So, so I think that there were 
I think that the answer to the two parts of your question are actually different because you asked, when did I know that I might be good? And when did I just start rewiring my brain? So the brain rewiring started happening very early on. I just started noticing, oh my God, you know, I'm seeing everything in a different light. I think that happens when you immerse yourself in anything new, truly immerse yourself. You start seeing things through that lens. You start seeing things more deeply. It helps you appreciate life on a different level. And so that started happening very early on. And I started seeing my decision quality improve outside of poker very early on. But I actually never had this moment of, wow, I might actually be good because I just, I had Eric as a grounding force who kept telling me, you know, don't look at results. Yeah, exactly. Well, he would never say (laughs) you suck, but okay, you've done this. Now here's the next goal. Who would keep setting goals for me that were far away. Um, and who would keep kind of telling me what I had to work on, which is wonderful. I'm so glad that he did that. I don't want a cheerleader. I want a coach. But, you know, you you said something really interesting about when you immerse yourself in something, there, there's a certain pleasure out of that. Absolutely. And, and, and it, it, it feels really good. It unleashes all this dopamine inside you. And I think when people say, well, I haven't figured out my passion or my purpose, what they're really looking for is that thing where when you immerse yourself in it, it just feels so good as Mm -hmm. you start improving at it. Yeah. And it feels bad when you lose, but since you're improving, you're able to kind of get through those moments and that's part of the psychology of improvement. But, um, uh, you know, a lot of people, there's, there's, there's a, an important lesson in what you went through. It's like you said earlier, you didn't even know what you're going to write your book about. Yeah. And then you explore different things and then, okay, we're going to try poker People don't realize you can't think your way to a passion. You have to actually like do things. Absolutely. Like if you had never played poker, you would never have known, oh my gosh, I'm I love this so much. I'm gonna immerse myself in it. Absolutely. And actually I uh I was already working with Eric for about three months, maybe even a little longer, before I even wrote my book proposal. Because I wanted mm-hmm. to it wasn't like I was like, This is the book. I needed to see, you know, is it gonna work? Um, I don't wanna wind up in Vegas and realize, oh my God, I hate this. This is miserable. I have zero interest in doing it. It goes back to what you and I were talking about at the very beginning of this conversation, to follow that if you write about something that you're passionate about, that you're interested in, that you're fascinated by, it's going to be much better than if you yeah. just write about something because you think it's going to sell or you think that you know you should write about it because of this or because of that. Um, and so I, I needed to find it out. Let me ask you the same thing. I actually ask my kids when they tell me they're they're interested in something. Like I always ask my kids, well, what do you want to major in or what do you want to mm-hmm. do for a job? And they say things and I kind of sniff out a little. It doesn't really sound to me like this is a passion. This sounds to me like a job yep. that, they're, that they think might be interesting. So I'll ask you the, the question I asked them, which is, did you start dreaming about poker? Oh, absolutely. Just because I think that happens. Oh, all the time. It was. It's so funny. I had. <laughs> I had these experiences where there were mo- multiple times when I just woke up from a nightmare, and I knew that it was a horrible nightmare, and I was thinking, "What? What just happened?" And it was a bad beat. It was a poker bad <laughs> beat playing out in my dreams. And sometimes, you know, I would remember my dreams, and they were poker dreams. Basically, I was just living, breathing, dreaming poker. Sometimes I'd have really good dreams, and I'd wake up and think, "Oh, that was a really pleasant dream." Oh, I was winning at poker. 
And and it was just, it was very funny because it just went on every single level of my subconscious. It was always with me. And I think it had to be one of the reasons I had to go on a leave of absence on book leave from The New Yorker and stop writing for a while, at least stop writing for The New Yorker. I was constantly taking notes and, and writing um, what would eventually become The Biggest Bluff. But one of the reasons that I had to do that was that I realized after those three months when I actually decided to do the proposal and write the book um, and do this, that I needed to immerse myself and that immersing myself means just doing it completely, that I couldn't half-ass it, so to speak. Right, so it wasn't like you were writing about poker. This became your really intricate story. Like, this was yeah. your life. Uh, and you you became the poker player that rather than writing about, oh, I'm going to write about this interesting subculture, yeah. which is what a lot of books are like, or oh, I'm going to write about this interesting scientific research about tells and bluff bluffs and stuff like that. You were writing about your growth in this, which is which is is so much more valuable, I think, compared to you know so many books that that are about a topic without the author immersing themselves in that topic. I hope so. I, I, it, that was the that was the intent because I, it was val it was the only way that I could think to do it. And it, l l you you talk a little bit in the book about tells and mm -hmm. the science of tells. I want to briefly touch upon that. Sure. Like, um, what what were I mean? I think there's a certain mythology of tells that you could see in the movies and and the fiction about poker. Yeah. It's not totally accurate. E even in Rounders, which we both agree is a great movie about it poker, is. they have to add like a almost like. <laughs> mythological, you know, Oreo stuff cookie. about tells. Yeah, the Oreo <laughs> cookie. But uh, uh, like, what what did you notice that was actually, you know, the, tells do exist they and do. you can't determine things about people by the way they, they act. What, what were some kind of things you noticed that were pretty obvious? Well, I mean, when someone is, so I think you need to distinguish different types of players. When someone's a recreational player and they're new um, and they don't really kind of, they don't, Either they don't know or they don't care or both because there are some poker players who are just there to have fun, right? So, so for them, they just want to have a good time and so they might not be working as hard at concealing. So that's a very different type of poker player from the poker player who is deadly serious about this, for whom this is their profession and they've been doing this for years um, and they just monitor everything they do. I, th I, th I think that everyone has tells on some level but it's probably not what you think. So some of the some of the research that I found, so some, some of the work that's been replicated the most is actually on hands, that the face is very misleading. Then when we try to stare people down, we get more bad information than good information, and we end up being worse than chance at telling whether they're bluffing or not. But if we focus on the hands um, alone and on the motion, um, we can actually tell a lot about whether a person is strong or weak. Um, and the important thing is not just to look at one thing, but to look at it repeatedly over time. So what I always, my approach, and I think the thing that's most valuable, is to once again pay attention and notice how people are sitting, how they're acting just normally, just pay attention to them. And then what you're looking for is deviations from baseline. Once you figure out what their baseline is, how they normally play a hand, you know, how they normally place their hands, how they normally bet, how they normally act, when does that change? And every time there's a showdown, every time you actually get to see whether or not they were bluffing or not, that's valuable information. You should note it down and you should figure out 
whether there's anything that's reliable there. And this ties so many of the things that you and I were talking about together. You have to be willing to change your mind because sometimes you think you found a tell and then it ends up that it wasn't a tell after all. Or they also do it, you know, they did it when they were strong, but they also do it when they're weak. Or they didn't. Or, or they could be faking you out on purpose. Exactly. They could be yep. pretending to have For a tell. Sure. It's, it could be masterful. So, so you, need to, you need to be willing to change. You need to be willing to change your opinion based on the input. And the last thing I will say is that tells should be your last resort. Um, that you should look at all the other things. You know, we were talking about storytelling, you know, the logic of the story, does it make sense? There's so much information that you have that physical tells, you should look for them for sure, um, but they shouldn't, usually they're a kind of a icing on the cake, or if you can't quite decide they're the tiebreaker, they're not usually the only reason why you do something. But there was advice you got, though, that I I think I've probably messed up on <laughs> repeatedly in the past, which is, and I agree with you about the face, like that that's useless. But I, you know, I, I think for me, my big problem was the hands. Mm -hmm. Like if I had a strong hand, you know, I would touch my cards too much or I would put <laughs> chips on the card, almost like I got to like nail down this hand, like I'm protecting it. So yeah. let's put five chips on this. And I would think it's just casual, but it would be different yeah. than when I didn't have a good hand. Then I would just not care about the cards. I would I would treat them with less respect yep, for the cards. For sure. And I think that's a uh, that's an important thing. So I remember when you when you write about that in the book, mm -hmm. I, I that I think was a bad when I played <laughs> a lot like that, I would I would do that poorly. Yeah. And like I, I would I would protect my cards too much or touch them or put chips <laughs> on them. The advice that you got, which is never touch your cards, is great advice. Yes, it is great advice. Yeah, I, I worked with someone, Blake Eastman, who is an, an expert on this. Um, I, I've played yeah, with Blake, yeah. actually, at his apartment. He's a, he's a, he, he has like a poker consulting yep, company. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So he watched lots of footage of me and gave me feedback um, on the tells that I have, which I then selflessly shared with the world. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Nobody remembers. Uh, I actually want to ask you about some specific hands in the book. Uh, uh -oh. and I, I hope people don't, <laughs> don't mind. But there was some interesting hands that, that you either played well. First off, I'll always know, I'll always hope that you have a King Jack if I ever play you again <laughs> in poker. Like, you seem to repeatedly mess up those hands. Yes. But um, uh, there was one time you had um, a pair of sevens. Mm -hmm. And oh, no, 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 there was one time. I did have a pair of sevens once. <laughs> yeah, no, but there was, a, there was a time before that it might have been the King Jack time. And you had, oh, yeah, and the king came on the board. So yep. you had the, the high pair, but there was king, queen, jack. Uh, and so I think there might have been a, there, so obviously there was a straight, potential straight on the table. And, and there might have been a potential flush. I forget. I don't know. But certainly, if anybody's playing the hand and they have two high cards, there's a, huge chances for a, a two pair or a three of a kind. Oh, this was uh, this was actually so the hand the board you're talking about. Um, I had aces. I didn't have king. Yeah, jack. yeah, you had aces. I had pocket aces. Yeah, um, yeah, you had aces. So I remember thinking you had the straight draw also, but but yeah, uh, you know, I you had, bet the other person calls. Yeah. So so this was a very this was an interesting and pivotal hand in my development. I opened under the gun, which is for people who don't play poker, the first position. So you have to have really strong hands, but I happen to have aces, which is the, the best, the strongest, the strongest hand. hand you can possibly have um, before the flop. Um, and everyone was, everyone started folding and everyone folded except for the big blind. And 
So a few different things that I want to point out here. This is a final table of a major international tournament. So the pay jumps are huge. I mean, every time someone's knocked out, you make tens of thousands of dollars. So laddering up is very, very important, and your chips are very, very valuable. It's what's called ICM, the independent chip model. So you have ICM considerations because every single time you ladder, it's really, it's, it's substantial money. Um, so, so let's just kind of set the context. So in that context, when someone opens under the gun, the big blind is not going to defend nearly as often because they are in a bad position throughout the hand. They have to act first. You have position on them. Um, so in poker, as, as in any negotiation, position is very valuable. You want maximum information, so you want to act last. And their chips are very valuable. And so it stops making sense to defend as often, especially if someone's raising from under the gun. So when someone defends the big blind, they have a much stronger range of hands than they would have in other situations. So he defends. And then the board comes king, queen, jack. So I, I I have a question <laughs> yes. for you. So you're you're under the gun. You're meaning again, as you said, you're you're kind of in a slightly riskier position, even though you have the best possible hand, yep. aces. So one thing, obviously, you could have done just to guarantee winning the hand is you could have just gone all in right then. <laughs> did that did that enter your consideration at all? I think like it's one thing if you were at last position with aces, but here no, I had I had over eighty big blinds. You don't shove open shove for eighty big okay. blinds because. You don't want to risk it. What if someone after me who has 100 big blinds has kings and decides to call because kings is the second best hand? And what's the chance that I'm being an idiot who's shoving 80 big blinds with aces? Pretty low. So they call and a king comes and all of a sudden I'm knocked out of the tournament. So I come from being second in chips to out because I took this incredibly high variance line. When there are ICM considerations, when you are in a place where laddering matters, and there are short stacks, by the way, there were people who didn't have a lot of chips, you have to put your variance way down. You have to start taking far less risky lines. That's the smart way to do it. So, But, but you did raise though, right? I did. Like you didn't, oh, no, you, didn't you don't limp. Call. You never limp. Limping is just okay. bad poker. Um, ever? No, nothing is ever. As as Eric said, right. no certainty, less certainty, more inquiry. There's always a time and a place for limping, and there's always a place for a limping strategy. 80 big blinds under the gun is not it. So, okay, so you, you raise like... So I raise um, a standard raise, um, you know, two big blinds. So that's a standard tournament raise. He defends, and the flop comes king, queen, jack, which I should, that flop should make me throw up. That is not a board that aces like because he defends all of his, you know, king queens, king jacks, queen jacks, um, and all of those hands have just made two pair, which is better than my one pair. He also defends all of his ace tens and his nine tens, which are straights, and he just has so many things that beat me and that already, you know, that beat me now, and... This is not, and it's very hard for you to improve your hand. Yeah, no. The, from that. the only thing that can happen is, you know, I can a ten can come and I have a straight, um, as yeah. long as there's no flush. But it's very hard. Yes, exactly. Like I, I'm just not. I'm not a happy person at that point. And I, you know, he checks, which is very standard. You normally check to the preflop raiser. That's kind of the standard way of doing it. And I bet. Um, which is also fine. I should probably, on a board like that, I should probably bet small because or check because 
It's not a. It's a board that's not great for me. Be, because let's say let's say he had like a pair of fours. Yeah. He might have defended that. Yes, pre-flop for, sure. for all you know. And if I and if I bet small, he he might call as well, at least once. Right, right. Whereas if um, if you bet too much, he's just out. You don't make any more money yep. from the position. And or but if you bet too much and he calls, then you know you're in trouble. Exactly, exactly. Because you're the only one with the aces, yep. probably. Yep. Be unlike that he has aces. Yep. And if he had any other hand, well, maybe ace king he could have had. I don't know. He could have had ace king, yes. But he, but there's also, yes, he could have had ace king. But I have aces, so the chance, so I have blockers, very strong blockers to ace king. So the chance that he has that are right. lower. But in any case, but he could. He absolutely could. Um, the fact that I have two aces doesn't mean he can't have an ace. And like I said, he could have ace 10. So I bet big because I'm an idiot. Um, and he calls. And once again, we've just been over this. If he calls after I bet big, that's not great news for me. right? That, that means that he probably has a pretty good hand. Um, right, because he's not going to call with a pair of fours, no, for instance. Because I bet big. He has to have something on that table. Yes, that, Otherwise, he would have raised too. Like if he's trying to scare you. Yes. He would have then you might not have known what he would have had if he had raised you then, but just the fact that he calls it's not it's not I feel it's like not good news for me. yep um and then the next card is a, is a blank. I don't remember what it is. It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change anything. And he checks again, and any smart person at this point would check behind because he'd already he'd already called such a big bet. And I decide to just bet big again because I'm an idiot. And I have aces, and that's great. And I'm very happy about my aces. Um, sunk cost fallacy in action. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and he raises. And he raises to, to kind of put a good chunk of my chips in the middle. And I, at that point, that should be an instant fold. Like, you, you can't call there. It's just, he's already called me twice with very big hands and now he raises it's just so many red flags and he has just um, any one of his value hands beats mine and even if I'm somehow still winning almost any river is bad for me because there are just so many draws out there but because 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 let's just say god forbid he had ace king mm -hmm. so he had the highest pair on the on, on the table plus the the highest kicker he still probably would not have raised. He would not have raised. Because there's too many value hands for you. Absolutely. No, I mean, we're once again, we're at the final table of a major tournament. And this guy, by the way, is an international chess grandmaster. So this is someone who is very smart and very good at strategy. He is not raising me with ace-king. No way. Um, he is not even loving his ace-king. I mean, he's going to call. He's not folding, but he's not loving it. So... I, instead of folding, which I should do instantly, I, I don't even think it through. I just call right away because I have aces, and so that's great. Um, and then the river, luckily, I mean, I'm so lucky that the river came a king, so it paired the board. It was a second king. And now I realize that if he had a king this whole time, he beats me. So even that beats me, and he checks again. First he check-raised, then he checked, and I'm, at this point, something just registered in my head, and I checked back. And he had a flopped straight. He had 9-10 for a flopped straight. Um, and the king actually saved me because he knew, unlike me, he was smart about it and he was thinking through all of these things. He knew I could have had queens or jacks, um, that I could have had now a full house, that he'd had me beat before, but that paired king 
puts a full possible full house on the board because I have all the queens, I have all the jacks, I have all the kings, I have all the big pairs, um, and he has none of them because he would have probably re-raised them pre-flop. And so he, that king just saved my life, saved my tournament. But I just lit so much of so many of my chips on fire, and um, this was, you know, this was a live table because um, it was a final table, and Eric was following along. And he texts me after this hand um, is is broadcast <laughs> and just basically tells me what I already know, that I really fucked up. But then he says, you know, move on. Just clear your mind. Yeah. Your job now is just to make good decisions. Forget it happened. We'll talk about it later. And that was it was very helpful for me to hear that at the moment, that I just had to reset. And that I had to reset my whole strategy because before I had 80 big blinds, after this hand, I had like 20 big blinds. I mean, there went my chips. I went from the second in chips at the table to one of the shortest stacks at the table, all within the first half hour. And this was a great example of not quite paying attention maybe to the narrative (laughs) of what was happening. Yes. So like like you said, if he had like, let's say he had a pair of kings uh, at at the beginning, he might have raised your raise mm-hmm. from the big blind yep. maybe um or he might have not checked when the flop came out yep. you know king queen jack um but then when he you know calls you know he has something um and then the check raise uh yeah i was telling you a big story i wasn't paying attention to anything and i was also paying attention to my ego it was all about me and i had aces so i did everything wrong i mean psychologically and strategically i mean i just butchered that hand um and i think i mean i don't want to let myself off the hook i just played abominably in that hand but um in, in my defense, it was my first major final table. I mean, this is in an international arena. This is the first half hour of it. Um, and I was really nervous. Um, I was, you know, I was really scared. I had a lot of nerves. Um, and I hadn't slept basically at all the night before. So I wasn't thinking well. Um, and I think this hand might have actually led to my eventually winning this tournament. Because and, and the hand's a great story. It made it into your book. <laughs> it did. It did. But it also... It's a critical hand. It is a critical hand because it forced me to slow down and to actually start thinking correctly through my decisions because I screwed up so badly at the beginning. Had I just gotten lucky, I might have then, you know, just thrown my chips away in other situations. But this made me just suddenly stop and pause and really reassess. And I think it got me in the zone in a way that winning probably wouldn't have done. Well, I, I want to read a quote that you have towards the end of the book, which I thought was um, beautiful, and I want to read it out loud. Uh, you write, most people think of poker as a way to get wealthy, and it is, only not the way you think. I didn't make millions, but the wealth of skill I acquired, the depth of decision-making ability, the emotional strength and self-knowledge, these will serve me long after my winnings have run dry. And I think that's a really great way to to summarize what you've what you've learned from the game are you gonna do are you still playing i mean i know we 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 played two weeks ago in the same tournament so i know you're still playing a little i am and i'm playing in another charity tournament on june 11th would you like to join (laughs) sure what's the tournament it's a great tournament that i've played in in past years it was always live before this is the first time that it's going online it's called poker for life for the buoniconti fund to cure paralysis I will send you all of the information. All right, excellent. I will. I will play in it. And uh, well, look. What's have you thought about the next book, or are you just going to be a professional poker player now? <laughs> 
No, no. I mean, I, I definitely want to keep writing. But at this point, you know, I, I have no idea what the future is going to bring. So I'm just taking it one step at a time. So first, let's get through this book launch, um, and then we'll take it from there. Excellent. Well, Maria Konnikova, once again, uh, the book is The Biggest Bluff, and it's such a great story. It's like this almost like perfect story, which you, 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 you know, it's the arc of the hero completely. And it all happened. Like it, you, you, you got great at poker <laughs> and you know, you start off with nothing, you get the mentor, it's the call to action. The problems get bigger <laughs> and bigger and you meet more and more, you know, compatriots along the way. And then you return to tell the tale. This is star Wars. This is the Bible. <laughs> this is the Bhagavad Gita. Like you've, you've got it down here. So I can't wait till that. Have you sold the movie rights yet? This is clearly a movie. No, not yet. Not Scott, yet. You're going to sell the movie rights. That's my prediction. Um, <laughs> but uh, thanks once again for coming on the podcast. And I'm, I'm sure you'll, you'll be on many more trips. And I look forward to playing poker against you again. Thank you. I, I can't wait. And thank you so much for having me. It's always an absolute pleasure to talk to you. You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.